Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the day of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as the day of the Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with his justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's good to be with you guys this morning. If you're new, I especially want to welcome you guys. Uh, We planted this church uh, this year. We had our public launch just this last Sunday. Uh, And our goal has always been to just create a safe place for people wherever they are on the faith spectrum uh, to just truly just explore uh, what it means to to know Jesus, to to love him and and to worship him. And um, we're here right now in the middle of a series on, on Advent, the Christmas season. We're here to, to celebrate Advent and explore the true meaning of the Christmas season. Now, to be clear, when I say the true meaning of Christmas, what I'm not saying is I'm not slamming like all the other stuff, right? Like I'm not, I'm not slamming the, the tree or the lights or the Nat King Cole or the giving and receiving of gifts. I mean, you just like look at our setup here, right? We're not, we're not anti those things. Uh, in fact, we've got this all-church uh, Christmas party at the end of the year. Like, we hope you guys will be there. Um, and we're going to have this optional but, like, massive uh, white elephant gift exchange. It's going to be epic. Um, and so we're not, like, anti-Christmas flair, all right? Um, I'm not anti-Christmas flair, but we do want, what we do want to do is we want to we push, push through that stuff. We want to push through the curtain of the Christmas decor, push through all the flair to see and to savor the beauty of the Christmas story and all its brilliant humility. God came. God came as a baby. He came as a baby in a manger. And we're gonna, what we're doing is we're unpacking why he did that. Why did he do that? And why does that matter for us today? And so, and so this, this great season is really a time where we, we turn to the good news. We turn to the good news that's revealed in the scriptures. And we're reminded of why Jesus came, uh, why he came for us, uh, how he's with us today, and, and how we can be with him. It's where we reconsider all that God has done, all that he's doing in the world, and what he's promised to yet still do. And that's the message of Christmas. That's the message that we need to dig into, to press into. That's a message that, that we need. 
a message that our world needs. And so, excuse me, we're turning uh, this morning to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The Old Testament book of Isaiah to a passage that you normally see like plastered everywhere at Christmas time, right? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Guaranteed, you have at least like two family Christmas cards hanging on your refrigerator right now with that verse right on there. And you might be wondering, why are we going Old Testament to learn about the meaning of Christmas? Like, isn't the Old Testament what happened before the birth of Jesus? And that's true. But the point of the Old Testament, like the whole thing, is to all the Old Testament is to point forward to Jesus in anticipation. That's what the Advent season is about. It's about the anticipation of Jesus' coming. And so the Old Testament, including the book of Isaiah, is, is a book of prophecies filled with foretelling uh, who Jesus is, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Prophecies written on scrolls that were historically dated way before Jesus' life. But that tell about him, that, that promise about him that foretell him. And this passage in Isaiah 9, this famous Christmas passage, is just dripping with the meaning of Christmas. It was good news told to people before Jesus about who Jesus would be and why he would come and how he would come to bring light to a dark world. And so here in Isaiah, um, he's the prophet Isaiah, he's writing to a people that are in anguish. They're in darkness and anguish. They're in literal and in spiritual darkness. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dig deep into this passage and turn our gaze to the one that Isaiah calls the great light. That's what he calls Jesus. He foretells about Jesus and calls him the great light. And so we're going to look at three things. One is the need for the great light. Secondly, the coming of the great light. And lastly, the identity of the great light. So the need for great light, the coming of the great light, and then lastly, who, who is the great light? What is his identity? So let's look at that first one. The need for a great light. The need for a great light. The great light was needed... Because spiritual darkness needed to be invaded. It needed to be illuminated. You see, when we, when we use this word darkness, like sometimes when we think like darkness, um, we kind of have like our own cultural sensibilities imposed on what we think about that, right? We think like Tim Burton movies and stuff like that, right? Like when you think of the word darkness. But, but darkness, when the scriptures talk about darkness, when this passage talks about darkness, the picture that we should have is a world without the truth, goodness, and beauty of God. That's what darkness is. And so great light was needed because spiritual darkness that was pervading the world needed to be invaded. And so look at verse 1 with me. It says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. God is going to make Galilee glorious again. Now, Galilee, that's where Jesus would go to do his ministry on earth. But let me walk you through a little bit of history of Galilee described here. And this is important. You see, when, when this was written, 
the world was already broken, right? It was already covered in spiritual darkness, and Israel was already suffering. But Galilee, that region, had the worst of it. They got the short end of the stick. Like, Galilee was the pits. It, it's in the northern part of Israel, right? Where you've got this, the mountains on one side and you've got the sea on the other. And so in Old Testament times, every time that Israel will get invaded, which is pretty often because they were like kind of this small puny nation, everyone was trying to invade Israel. And every time they would do that, because there was mountains on one side and sea on the other, they'd always come down through the north. They'd come down and creep down from, uh, through Galilee. And Galilee would get destroyed first. And so all of this language uh, about darkness here, and then in verse 5, the language about battles and marching and blood on the garments and fire um, and how invaders would, would burn the city down to the ground. Like that, that imagery we see in this passage paints a vivid picture to us of just this, this violent history of the region. That's uh, kind of intense. Uh, Merry Christmas, right? Um, but look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2 is when the good news comes. In verse 2 it says, the people who walked in darkness, the people in this region, in Galilee, who walked in darkness and pain and despair, they have now seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkest, darkness, now on them has light shone. You see, here's what I want you to see in, 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 in this verse, is that smack in the middle of this dark, small spot on the map, smack in the middle of Galilee is this landing zone for the light of the world. You see, these aren't just a group of people who had a rough go at, of, at life. Like They've had centuries upon centuries of darkness and invasion, and now... It becomes a place where divine light would invade the world. That darkness, that brokenness that we see in the Galilee region, that's just an emphasized sort of snapshot of the condition of the world. That darkness, that brokenness in Galilee is just a snapshot of really like the problem throughout the whole world. It's kind of like how if you want a snapshot of, of like the bright OC beach life, like people look at Laguna Beach, right? That's what people think of. They think of Laguna or, or maybe Huntington, right? If you want a snapshot of the despair in the world back then, like you look at Galilee. And the brokenness in Galilee was a snapshot of the brokenness pervasive throughout the world. And look, that's the first thing that we need to come to terms with in the Christian worldview. The first thing that we need to come to terms with, um, that even the most hardened skeptic has to admit, is that something has gone terribly wrong in our world. Something's up. Something has gone wrong with our world. Things are not as they should be. Right? Can we all agree on that? Things are not as they should be. Something has gone wrong in the world. Something has gone wrong in humanity. Something has gone wrong in, in me. And something has gone wrong in, in you. We are all broken. We're all broken. 
You see, when God created all things in the beginning, he called it good. He said that all his creation was good. When he spun the stars into existence, when he fashioned the tiniest cells that make up every creature, when he formed mankind from the dust of the ground, all of it, he said, is good. But then when sin entered the world, a shadow was cast over that good creation. And now the earth, all of its creatures, and all mankind are stained by sin. It's the condition that we've all inherited. Every single one of us can feel the tension of that brokenness. And so what we see in the scriptures is that primarily... What's broken in you, what's broken in me, what's broken in all of us is is that you have an amputated relationship from God, your maker, your maker and sustainer. And that brokenness overflows now into all the relationships that we have, in the businesses that we work in, in the governments we empower, and the whole rest of creation. You see, according to Romans 8, our souls, they groan in eager longing with the rest of creation for things to be restored, for the good life that was lost. We long to, to, to no longer have to say, things are not right in this world. Things are not right with me. This is the chord that C.S. Lewis struck when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were made for another world. You ever get that, that sense, that deep-seated feeling that, man, things are not right. Like, this, this world is not what it should be. I must be made for something more. We were made for another world, not a broken one, but a renewed one. Not a world plagued by the darkness of human history, but a world that is illuminated with the light of Christ. You see, that's what we were made for. That's why we long for the good life. And that is why from the very moment that the universe was fractured by sin, God began to lay out and unfold his plan to send a Savior who would rescue us from the mess of our lives, from the sin in our hearts, and from all that is broken in his created world. And so that's why there's a great need for for a great light. Now now let's look at the coming of the great light. You see, it's against the sort of the backdrop of this, this darkness that God gives good news through the prophet Isaiah when he says that light has come. That's the Christmas story. Right? That in the midst of darkness, light has come into the world. Read verse 2 with me. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now I want you to notice something in, in, in this verse. Isaiah is speaking, he's speaking in the past tense, right? He's saying light has shone. He's speaking in the past tense like it already happened. But what he's talking about, the coming of Jesus, is something that wouldn't happen for many more years. You see, what's, what he's actually prophesying about is something that, that won't happen for, 
centuries. It's this literary device that you see throughout the Old Testament called the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect. That's when you're talking about events on the horizon as though they're already like in the rearview mirror. It's this way of saying, this is as good as done. This light shining into a dark world is as good as done. And why can the prophet say that? He can say that because this plan is divinely inspired. It's a divine plan. You see, some of you here this morning are feeling the effects of a dark and broken world. Some of us are feeling that. Like you've had, you've had a hard year. You've, you've had a tough, a tough go at, at work or with family or lost a loved one. You're feeling broken, down, troubled, and sad. But in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of a, of a rough go at life, let me ask, what promises in God's Word are a comfort to you? What promises when life is hard in God's word are a comfort to you? What truths from his word give you hope? What comforting truth? Though you can't like see it or feel it, you just know it to be true and so you cling to it. My wife is, is really good at this. When she's, when she's meeting with women and, and counseling friends go, who are going through a rough time, like she'll, she'll often ask them, and she does this for me too, she'll ask them, what truths from God's word are you clinging to in this moment? What promises are you meditating on and trusting in? You see, it could be that you're struggling to believe that God is great and in control, and so anxiety is taking over. It could be that you're struggling to believe that, that God is, is, is enough to satisfy the longings of your soul, and so you're, you're turning to your usual vices. It could be that you're struggling to believe that, that God forgives you and loves you based not on your performance, but on Jesus and His grace. Or you're struggling to believe that God is with you in your pain and suffering, that He'll never leave you and He'll never forsake you. What are you struggling to believe that you need to hold on to? You see, that sure promise of hope, hope that's as good as done, that's what God provides here through Isaiah in this passage. God's people receiving this letter, they were deep in darkness. They were deep in pain and brokenness. But God said to his people, light has shone. Hope has come. That's the message of Christmas. You see, that unless God revealed himself through the Son and sent him into the world, then there's no light for the world. On them, light has shone. Notice he says, on them, light has shone. That means the light is coming from beyond us, right? It's shining down. It's God stepping in. It's God coming to us. It's God breaking into our broken situation to bring light from the outside. Because darkness can't illuminate darkness. It needs light from elsewhere, and that's why Jesus came down. You see, how does a people in darkness, how does a people in darkness like this respond to the hope of new light? 
How should we respond to the hope of new light? How do we respond when the light of the gospel shines onto our darkened hearts? Verse 3 tells us that you respond with joy. Read verse 3 with me. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, most of us know nothing about the joys of farming, right? And the joys of harvest. But what we do share with the farmer in the harvest is the joy that we feel when we see the fruits of our labor, right? When you've worked hard for a long time and you see the fruits of your labor, something that you've been longing for and working towards, like you get to reap a harvest, so to speak. It's the joy of getting sort of like that Christmas bonus that you didn't expect after a long year of hard work. It's the joy of getting married after a season of waiting and dating and engagement. If you're like an author or a musician, it's the joy of holding like the first advanced copy of your published work. If you're a teacher, it's the joy of reaching that tenure status. If you're retired, it's the joy of drawing from your matured investment account for the first time. You see, it's the joy of receiving something that you've longed for, that you've waited for. And if you're a Christian this morning, that's your story. That is your story. You've been called into the joy of the light. 1 Peter 2.9 says, this is how it describes Christians. It says, you, followers of Jesus, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Light has shone. You see, this passage in Isaiah 9, this passage tells us that the great light that humanity longs for is a person. The great light that we long for is a person. Now, who is this person? Who is the one that brings light to the darkness and joy to those in in longing? Who is the great king of light? The one who will punish the darkness, and restore all things to the good life. Like, who is this great Savior that we long for? Read uh, read verse 6 with me. This is that famous Christmas verse. Verse 6. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who Christmas is about. This is who we celebrate during this season. It's the day that God came and dwelt among us. It's the day that that God pursued us. So now let's unpack the identity of this great light. Who is this great light? What is his identity? It says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, Many of us look like regardless of your political affiliation, like many of us are skeptic of the word government, right? Like there's more moderates in, 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 in recent history now than there ever has been before. A lot of us are skeptic of, skeptical of government. 
both on the left and on the right. But the point of that, so when we read that word, the government shall be upon his shoulder, we're like, what does that mean, right? But the point of that phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulder, is actually to say and make the point that the baby in that manger, he's going to be the one to benevolently rule and sovereignly rule over all things. He would be the one who would rule over all things. He would govern in really the truest sense of the word. Everything will be under his care. Now, why is that important? It's because all of his promises of hope and light and restoration are only as good as the extent of his power and rule. See, if Jesus isn't sovereign, if he's not great, if he's not in control, then how would you know that there's hope to be found in the most difficult of circumstances? You can have that assurance because this king rules. Because he has power. He can deliver all that he's promised. I love the story of um, Corey Ten Boom. She wrote this book called The Hiding Place. And Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy, um, they, they own this, this shop in, um, in, in the Netherlands, like back in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, and these two women in their town, in their village, they were like key to, to hiding and saving a lot of Jews uh, who were being rounded up by the Nazis in concentration camps. They eventually got caught. And because they got caught, Tori and Betsy ended up in a concentration camp themselves in the 1940s. And they stayed there in that concentration camp for the rest of the war. Life for them at that point was like as dark as it could be. They witnessed the most vile things in that concentration camp. At one point, Corey says to her sister, this place is the pit of hell. That's how she described it. And then her sister Betsy replied to her, I love this. There's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. Corey says, this place is the pit of hell. And Betsy responds, there's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. You see, your circumstances cannot take you to some place that's beyond the dominion of Jesus. Your despair can't take you so far down that you're beyond his reach. What else do we learn about the one that's called the great light? It says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now this tells us that Jesus is the source of all that is true and good and wise in this world. He'll be faithful to guide us towards good, li- good living. He knows that what, what we need to be saved, and he knows what we need to grow in the grace of God. He's the wonderful counselor. He is truth embodied. He's truth embodied. And look, that's good news for us because we live in what theologians have called uh, the space between the now and the not yet, right? You may have heard us talk about this before. We live between the now and the not yet. And what that means is that Look, a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and, and, and hope entered the world, right? And so that's something that, that we as followers of Jesus, we experience the joy of right now. We see that light. We've experienced life transformation. We have hope in a dark and broken world. But what Jesus started 2,000 years ago, he's yet to complete at the end of all time. 
And that's why they, theologians say we live between the now and the not yet. We experience the benefits of salvation now, but we still long for the day that all death, all darkness, and all despair will be no more. You see, when Jesus returns, he'll bring permanent joy and peace to our world. And we have a foretaste of it now, but we'll enjoy the whole feast when he returns. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that you are waiting. You've received, but you're waiting. And look, we seek counsel in this time of waiting from so many different fleeting places, but Jesus, the creator of the universe, it says he's our wonderful counselor. We can come to him. He's available to us. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It says he'll also be called Mighty God. Mighty God. It says that Jesus will be the warrior God, the mighty one who's great in power. This is the God, this is God in the flesh come to us. Do you know what the word mighty means? Like that Hebrew word, mighty, it, it means hero. It means hero or champion. Like a knight in shining armor. He's just an absolute beast, right? He will get the victory. The one who beats the odds to save his people. He's our champion God. That's what it means by mighty God. He's our champion. And here's a big takeaway for that point. This is the first time in all the Old Testament prophecies, this is the first time in all the Old Testament prophetic writings where we find out that this Savior that was promised to fix all that was wrong is not just a mere man who's going to show up and be like another earthly king like David or another earthly prophet like Moses, but this is God himself. Jesus is God himself, the way, the truth, and the life. God coming himself to fix all that is wrong, to crush the head of the enemy, to bless the nations of the earth, and to expand the breadth of God's family and the scope of his glory. God is coming, and he's going to solve this himself. That's what Christmas is about. It's the incarnation of God the Son. God in the flesh. Emmanuel means God is with us. He's also called our everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Now this can be confusing, right? Like, I thought Jesus was the Son, but here you're telling me He's the Father? Like, how does that work, right? Um, but this passage isn't so much about talking about Jesus' nature as God the Father. Because he's not. He's God the Son. But it's talking about the per per protective responsibility that he has. Jesus takes care of his own. He takes care of his own in the same way that a father is supposed to take care of his own. You see, sin severs our relationship with God. It, it, it alienates us from him. But Jesus takes responsibility for us and he reconciles us. He restores that relationship. Now look, when you pray, do you pray to God as like a distant king on a throne? Or as like a father type? As someone you have a relationship with? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are a child of the living God. Now look, a lot of us, some of us, um, like when we, when we, when we hear, hear that word father, we either have like a, a good picture in our mind of what, father looks, what a father is, 
or we have like a painful picture of what a father is, right? Like, can we admit that? But when, when, when we see that God is the father, he's our perfect father. He's our benevolent father. He's a father who takes care of us. He takes care of his own. The reason that the world applauds and admires a dad who takes responsibility for his own and the reason our hearts break when a dad isn't there or he's not involved, like we know what a bad father is, is because it's wired into our identity as human beings. We're made in the image of God. We're made to know and to experience what it's like to have a perfect and loving father. And that's why we're quick to know when we have poor pictures of that. Jesus is the kind of person. He's a, he has a, a fatherly nature. Now, he takes care of his own. It says he's also the prince of peace. He's a prince of peace. He's not only our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, and our eternal father, but he's also the prince of peace. In other words, he's the one who's going to bring peace to God's people. You see, the word for peace there is this Hebrew word, shalom. And shalom gives us this sense of like a full spiritual and like physical flourishing. It reminds us that Jesus isn't just here to fix you on the inside, but his saving work is far more cosmic. He's not just here to restore our souls, but he's here to renew all creation. Where there was once death, Jesus brings life. Where there was once hunger, Jesus satisfies. Where there was once alienation from God, Jesus reconciles. Where there was anxiety and sadness, Jesus brings inner peace. Where there was once brokenness in the world, Jesus is making all things new. You can't help but hear the echo in, in Revelation 20, 21 where it, it foretells about the final coming of Jesus where he says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. That's what the light of joy is about. It's not, it's not this vain wish, but it's a joyful expectation that all things will be made new. Jesus came. He really came. Like as as a as a pastor, like I get to to, to talk a lot with 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 strangers and, and with friends and acquaintances about um, about who Jesus is and, and what the scriptures teach. And what some of my skeptic friends will will will, will uh, repeat and often say is uh, they'll say, "Look, if you if there really is a God and He's really good and He's really in control, then why does all this bad stuff happen in the world?" Right? Sometimes they use a little bit more colorful language than that. But they say, you know, why does all this bad stuff happen in the world? Why do we have death and sickness and pain and despair and orphans? And they say, like, no, where was God? Where's God in the midst of all this? Why doesn't he do anything about it? And it's just like, that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of Jesus coming down. God did do something about it. He took responsibility Himself when none of us could. He came into human history to make all things new. The wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
And I love how this passage ends in verse 7. He says, His kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of this great life will have no end. It closes and says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do all of this. Now there's a sort of weight to that sentence. It's as if God is saying, look, I got this. His passion is driving him to action. God's love is not some, some like the love of God isn't this passive emotion, right, that he has, but it's a settled decision to actively move on behalf of his people. God's love isn't some passive emotion. It's a settled decision to actively move on behalf of his people. You see, up to this point, the people hearing this good news in Galilee, up to this point, when Isaiah said these words, there have been centuries of silence. 450 years, Israel was suffering. Galilee was getting the worst end of it. And they were wondering, like, man, what, what, what's going to happen? What, what's God going to do? All Israel could hear when they got this good news from Isaiah was just the noise of their present issues. They were, they were in despair, they were discouraged, and that's, even with this good news, all they could hear was just the noise of their present issues they were struggling with. But here, now God says the time has come. Here, he has spoken to them. And let, let me ask you, do you ever feel like God is silent? Do you ever feel like God is silent, like he's distant? Or do you feel like he's near? This passage reminds us that he is near, that he has come, that light has shone. Jesus came. He came for us. And because of his love, a great light has dawned, signaling the end of the shadow of death, signaling the beginning of a new hope. Look, the, the place the place that you and I need the light of joy the most, the place that you need the light of joy the most isn't outside of you, but inside of you. The real damage that sin has done is to our own hearts. And so the real question of the light of joy isn't, isn't there light for that darkness out there? The answer for that is yes, by the way. That's not the primary question for us. Isn't, isn't the light of, is there enough light for the darkness out there? But is, is there enough light for the darkness inside of me? That's the question. And Isaiah 9 tells us, yes. Yes. Resounding yes. Light has shone. In your foolishness, wisdom has come. In your weakness, might has come. In your alienation, adoption has come. And in your brokenness, peace has come. The Prince of Peace, through him there is joy. For to us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His kingdom will never end in the zeal of God will do all this. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.